Welcome to the Atypical Rainbow. I'm Paul. And I'm Grant. Uh, and this is another episode in the series, The Rainbow Dissection. Today's episode is entitled The Only Gays in the Village, which is a reference to a now blacklisted British sketch show. Um, but this is where it sort of came from. One of the things that has uh, always been on my mind when it comes to um, parenting is the sense of belonging and the idea that I mean, we all want to be understood, but whether or not focusing on a specific feature of your identity or personality is enough to form a friendship and how necessary that is. So for me, I always thought it was really important that the kids have friends whose parents are also gay and because I always wanted them to make sure that they didn't feel like their experience was isolating, I guess, more than anything else. But I, I, don't, I don't really know how to get started on that kind of stuff. And I'm not even 100% sure whether or not it's our place to choose their friends for them. I mean, I still do that now to some degree. There are some of their friends that I don't like <laughs> in the past. Actually, their friends now are okay. I think I don't have problems with any of them. But in the past, I've had a few friends. I'm like, mm, you should be friends with that person. Uh, but at the same time, I... You I don't guess... actually force them not to be friends with people. No, that's true. That's true. And so this is more prevention management than anything else. Trying to m- mitigate any issues they may have where they might feel like by being children of gay parents, they don't feel understood. But I don't know how important that is or how necessary that is, per se. It might also be different because there is two of them. I think if, for an only child, it might be more of an issue. Yeah, and I th- one of the th- things I remember early on when we found out we were having twins, I said I was grateful, was the fact that they would have each other. Because uh, I'm an only child, and uh, while my experiences weren't particularly unique, I think it would have been nice to have had... Um, someone else in my life to have shared the crazy and to, for me, because sometimes, you know, when you have these things happen to you that you want to complain about, some there's a, always a part of you, or at least for me anyway, that, may, that thinks, will someone else really understand? Like, if they don't see it, will they truly get it? Like, I remember early on in our relationship, I would warn you about the craziness of my mother and you, you being a very pleasant and uh, pragmatic kind of person, you handled it really well. And then as the years went on, we had a few difficult episodes. And although it was, I was really sad about the fact that you had to experience that, part of me was actually kind of happy. It's like, yes, it's not just me. I'm not going insane. This is actually something that's happening and I'm not taking it overly personally. I'm not misinterpreting it. This is actually something that's happening. And so in a way, that kind of validation is this extra step. I don't know if it was necessary for us as a part of our relationship, but it did make me feel like, I wasn't making things up and the experiences I had as, you know, they weren't horribly negative. I know there's worse cases out there, but it was nice to be able to, to not feel alone, you know? So I, and I guess I wanted that for our kids. Not that we're crazy. I mean, God, God willing, we're not crazy, but at least they wouldn't, they wouldn't feel like that. Yeah. They wouldn't feel overly different. I think is the key thing. Yeah. Like, I think there was always the chance that they would have problems around the fact that they had gay parents, which would be external problems being forced upon them, I guess. Like, I remember many years ago, they did a, like, a research on children raised in gay families versus children raised in straight families. And they found that the only real negative of being a child raised by um, gay parents was that people would stigmatise you for being a child raised by gay parents. So, no matter 
how perfect we could be, and no one is perfect, and we are far from it, there was still always going to be an issue that we couldn't fully understand because we're not the children of gay parents. Like, we can understand it from a different degree, but something that they have in common is if they ever experience a stigma. As far as we know, they haven't, um, which is good. But if they do start experiencing the stigma, they do have each other to talk to, which is good. Yeah, and I think we've gotten really lucky uh, in terms of this the school community that the kids have entered into. That was purely by geography. There was no, there wasn't a lot of planning going into it. We so we're sort of on the border between two school zones, um, neither of which were overly full for primary schools anyway. And we got to choose, and there was nothing wrong with the other one. Uh, and it was it was fine. It was a bit smaller, but there was nothing particularly bad about it. That, but this the school they ended up at, I, I found they were particularly sensitive to the kids' um, autism-related needs more than anything else. The whole gay parent thing didn't really come up, but there was just something very inclusive about the principal, I think, that made me feel very comfortable about it, about choosing the school that we did. Well, like, I think saying it never came up is probably not true. Uh, Because the thing is, it did come up, like, between kids asking questions. Um, But much in the same way that, you know, young kids will ask questions about why someone is overweight. Mm. Kids are just curious about things. Um, I think the thing about the school is that the staff dealt with it well. So just, I would like to point out that the overweight thing is a real life example. I mean, like there's a bit of a non, like an odd Well, it's a common community. thing. Like, you know, I, yes, I have had friends experience that, but it's not uncommon for um, larger women to be mistaken as being pregnant by young children or just children just ask them why they look like that. Mm. Um, I'm not sure whether kids just ask people racial questions. I haven't come across that. Yeah, I haven't come across that either. I don't know. I, I guess one day I wonder whether we're going to experience the um, the classic classic Asian guessing game. And funnily enough, it happens mostly between Asian people, less so from like Caucasian people. The which country are you from? Like that that kind of you look Vietnamese or you look Malaysian. So may get in the future, but so far hasn't had that problem. But yeah, so you know the idea that. Um, the kids need friends who have gay parents has kind of become irrelevant, really. Um, again, not that we can manufacture which, who they befriend, but it hasn't really come up. Everyone who we in, in our community has been incredibly nonplussed, I think is probably the best word for it. Like, it's not something that they necessarily make a big deal about. It's just sort of a fact. And the kids and the parents just go, all right, cool. And then they move on. They, they have that kind of curiosity you would about anything, as you said, but it's not... It's not necessarily a teachable moment, per se. Yeah, like, I think every now and then there will be a, like... There's lots of different families. Um, because it's true, there are a lot of different families. And they have been exposed to... Exposed might not be the right word. But they have been friends with a few people across the years whose parents have either already been separated or have separated later. So those are families that are different from the norm. Um, not in the same way, but... It's kind of like this idea of there are different diverse families. Some people don't live with their dad. Some people don't have a mum. Like, some people live with their grandma. We, like, there is a child in their year level who is an orphan um, Mm. because, unfortunately, her mum passed away during prep. So she lives with her grandma 
Hmm. And it's just one of these things. The different people are different families. Yeah. I I remember when we when the kids were really, really young, we made efforts to attend like a gay parent support group. But unfortunately that went horribly awry, probably for a few reasons. One being that um, you know, I'm autistic and I I struggle in new social situations, so I didn't really know how to enter the situation. Um, the other part of it being that you know it was poorly organised. You know, it was in a, it was in the botanical gardens. It was lovely. It was a lovely scene setting. But interestingly, what I later learned many many years later from someone who who sort of I guess has been has risen through the ranks in this particular group. They he reported that it was very it was a very clicky organization. So, you know, at the beginning it was designed to create a community of gay parents to to interact and and to discuss their issues. Uh, and they all became friends, which is great, except it it stopped becoming this sort of open invitation for new people. It basically just meant it was a bunch of people who were already friends to catch up and whose kids already knew each other for them to catch up. And they kept, you know, but they kept holding these official functions under this, you know, organization's banner. And, you know, I, we, I don't know, I felt really excluded. I felt like no one was really inviting us in. There was no one sort of coordinating or hosting. It was basically just a gathering of people who already knew each other and we knew no one. And so we're sitting there for, I don't know how long, just waiting, hoping someone would invite us in and nothing happened. So in the end, we just left, like made no impact whatsoever. I think we were in a photo and then we left. Were we in a photo? We were in Jesus. A photo. I don't even remember that. They gathered us for a photo, but then no one really interacted with us. Yeah. Yeah, like, I think the thing is, they really needed someone to reach out to people because it's not uncommon for people to have some level of social anxiety. Mm. So it's not like you were completely aberrant in that way. Mm. Um, so yeah, they, they really did need to do better at finding ways to include new people. Uh, but it reminds me, there was a group when I lived in Shepparton. I can't remember if it was called Young Shepparton or, like, New Shepparton People. Um, but, yeah, so basically it was a group that had formed to try to sort of welcome new people into Shepparton. Because a lot of people moved to Shepparton, police officers, teachers like me. But when I got there, like, in my young, my, like, early 20s, it basically become this group of people in their 30s who had already been there for 10 years who just knew each other. Mm. <laughs> there was really no use in the actual new Shepparton people um, trying to even join this group because, yeah, it had sort of stagnated 10 years before. So even though its name was about welcoming people to Shepparton, everyone had been there for a decade, if they remember. Yeah, that's kind of useless. And, you know, you know, if you're going to create an organization or event that's designed to be invite new members, you've got to think about this kind of stuff. Like, this is rudimentary kind of... I think of... it was a good idea at the time. Oh, yeah. And it's not to say that the intent was bad, but plenty of, plenty of things start with good intentions and through complacency or whatever, you just end up in a place where you don't think about what the issues are for for people coming in, people who don't Mm. know how the organisation is run. And maybe even organisation's not a particularly fair word if it's only like a very small (laughs) group of people. But you you got to make efforts to try and, you know, open the doors for people. Slightly off topic, I mean, that's uh, some of the... I'm experiencing some work issues at the moment, and that's really the core of it. The problem was... I was given the illusion that I was being invited in and then I come in and everything I say is either talked down at or told off to not do or things I like I um, that had already been thought of that I thought were new but no one had mentioned it to me. So 
I, I sort of basically got no orientation to this job, got thrown in, and then every, every time I tried to do something, someone would say, no, you're doing it wrong. And I'm like, well, how, how was I meant to know that? And it just, it made the whole experience really negative. Yeah. Like, I think um, it can be interesting to look at things from the other point of view, though, because I'm not sure if you find this with your trivia group, but with my Dungeons & Dragons group, we, like, have a lot of members who have known each other for a long time now. Um... And, you know, and when I, when I joined the the D&D group, which kind of evolved into this, kind of through a schism, I guess you'd say. So the, it's not the only group that was birthed from this group. Yeah. Um, but basically, when I joined the group, um, I was completely outside. I didn't know anyone. I found them online. And it was a group of people who got together once per week to play D&D. And they weren't friends. They may be acquaintances. Um, and over the years... Uh, I developed close friendships with some of the members, but there was also a lot of problem because they weren't friends that there was a lot of things built up across the years between other members and things got a bit toxic. And then we sort of cut off all the, you know, toxic members of the group. Um, And we ended up with this sort of core of people who were both playing Dungeons and Dragons every week, but also friends. Um, and we have welcomed people over the years, but we try to keep it kind of small because 10 people playing Dungeons and Dragons is very unmanageable. Mm. Um, so six or seven is probably as big as you want to go. So it's very rare that we actually do include a new player and we don't actively try to recruit people. Like there's no way people would find us as a group. Like we don't advertise on any of the searching for group forums or things. So we kind of, yeah, we kind of went from a group that did include new players, which is how I got into the group, to a group that doesn't really include new players. There is something to be said, though, for practicality. So one of the, one of the classic kind of um, autistic stereotypes is the idea that for some people, for people with autism, social engagements are always much easier when there is a, a shared activity. So when there is a group a collaborative effort. So again, tri- trivia works for me, D&D works for you. It just board games have worked for both of us. Yep, board games is a great one as well. You know, it it eases you, it eases a person with autism into the social part of it. So the social part of it becomes the incidental benefit of being there. Whereas when all it is is social interaction, there is no rule. So there's no structure and it, it leaves you and me particularly feeling really awkward and nervous and overthinking all everything that's going on in my head and what to say and what, how to say it. And it just, it becomes a bit of a mess, but having a shared activity really makes a lot of difference. But in your situation, part of it also is that on a practical level, it just doesn't make sense to involve more people. Mm. So with my trivia group, we've also sort of faced the same situation. We started with a smallish group that has gradually welcomed more people in sort of, you know, friends of friends and family members and whatnot. But we've actually been losing numbers over time for various reasons. Some people got busy, some people got sick, some people couldn't um, couldn't make the commitment that, that readily. But we've essentially become... A, a friendship group. And so we also wouldn't necessarily put our group on, on meetup.com or whatever, you know, like we're not going to advertise looking for new members because I, I would rather, and I don't know whether the group shares this philosophy because I don't mind if they bring their own friends, but I would rather have a small group of people that I know well than have a large group of people I don't know well. Mm. And, um, and it just, it just in, invariably makes me more comfortable, you know? Yeah, and I guess with Dungeons & Dragons, 
because there is like the game master or dungeon master, it's kind of their responsibility to include the new person. And I imagine with your trivia group, because people bring a friend, it's kind of the responsibility of the person who brought them to include them. A bit like when someone like starts dating someone and they include their partner, it kind of falls to them to include their partner. Though it depends on the partner. I remember I, I was very good at including you. Sometimes you forgot to introduce me to people. <laughs> I do remember one party where you're like, we were there for a little while and then you're like, oh yeah, like Grant, these are the people. And I'm like, I know I'm playing poker with them. <laughs> I don't remember this incident at all because clearly I'd forgotten about you during this interaction. <laughs> but that's, that, it's all right. We're, Aside I'm, that being, oh wait, you having no memory is quite normal. Yeah. And, and we're not, we're, I'm not friends with them anymore, so it doesn't really matter. Not that I disliked them, it was just a bit of a fade out rather mm. than, you know, a relationship cut off per se. They're lovely people, we just didn't have that much in common after we left med school. Yeah. Uh, so one of the, um, one of the things that my, uh, my closest friend, he used to do was, he was uh, a regular attendee of a gay club called The Market. No longer there anymore, but it was, it was, you know, you know, a center, like a central meeting place for a lot of people. And through that, he made friends. Now, he is very social. He is nothing like me. It is a miracle that we're still friends, but he's very good at just getting out there and, and interacting and just starting conversations. And he started attending a weekly dinner where the only thing that they all had in common was that they were gay and went to the market. That's it. Right. Interestingly, my friend actually met his future husband there, so it worked out quite nicely for him. Uh, but that was his thing, and he, he used to always invite me. He used to say, "You should come. You should, you know, get to know other gay people." And the reality is, I only have him is my he's my only connection to the gay community. Everyone, every other friend I have is straight, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like I don't, it, it doesn't. I don't notice it, I guess. I like it. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't become an issue that the friends that I have don't, in inverted commas, understand me. So, like, as much as the idea of it was good, I, I always kind of wondered if the only thing you have in common is being gay, is that enough to form a friendship? Not really. You know, it, it's quite common, I think, for gay people to get set up with gay people, not based on anything other than the fact they are two gay people that one person knows. Mm. <laughs> It's like, I know another gay person. <laughs> you must therefore go on a date with them. <laughs> Nothing to do with interest, just I know two gay people, so let's see if they can get together. Mm. So I guess to bring it back to the kids, I don't, yeah, I don't think they really, I don't know, they might one day want to search out a community of people who have gay parents. But I think just putting them in the vicinity of other people who have gay parents probably wouldn't have actually worked um, because that's not really what they're going to bond with people over. I think especially because to them, it's not a big deal. So at this point, I don't feel like they're searching for people who understand that part of them. I think if anything, strangely, the thing that the kids probably need to seek out um, are other siblings of autistic people because mm. I think that is the one thing they can't really talk to each other about about how frustrating it is being each other's siblings yeah and I've heard from other um, siblings of disabled people that it can be really nice to just be able to just say what their day is actually like with their sibling mm. to someone and have that person and feel like that person understands them yeah 
And I think that that's something I've discovered with talking to other parents of um, autistic kids, that it's really nice just sometimes to just be able to say, you know, I was walking to school and Jake was distressed because he thought a worm was going to touch his foot. Mm. And for them to not go, what are you talking about? Mm. For them to go, okay, that was tough, but you got through it. Mm. It just it just makes a big difference to be able to say those things. And I think with the kids, that's probably what they actually need. Um, the problem is I don't really even have anyone to try to set them up with for that. Yeah. Yeah. And look, the kids, by the time the kids start having issues, then maybe they're old enough to seek these things out themselves. Like we don't, we don't know what, what's out there, but you could probably easily Google search or, you know, something or find a group on Facebook. If Facebook is a thing with, with the kids generation anymore, I'm sure they could probably, so, you know, be self-sufficient in that manner, but you know, we're parents. I, I don't think it's that far away. If I think it may have already... Like, I think it would already help them now. But I just don't really have anyone for them. Like, I don't have any other kid to sort of match them up with. But maybe also the fact that they are autistic. Other siblings... Like, non-autistic siblings of an autistic child may not want to be friends with an autistic kid if they're already frustrated at being the sibling of an autistic kid. I guess it depends on what kind of relationship you have, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, because I've... Over time, I've learned that, you know, different friendships play different roles. You can't expect one person to sort of be all-encompassing. So maybe if they just find a friend who is their complaining friend, you know, mm. the friend that they just talk to and, and whinge about their problems, and that's that's their role in their life and vice versa, that might be enough. Like, just because you are a friend doesn't mean you necessarily have to be the best friend or the all-encompassing yeah. friend. So they might need a complaining friend. I don't know how to get them one. And also, I probably wouldn't know how to get Matt to actually open up to them. Well, that's the other thing, is that we don't really know whether or not articulating their problems is the thing that makes them feel better. Because if, because of their autism, they feel better by just being alone, if that's the solution mm. for them, then maybe that's that's what, what we do. We just let them have this space alone, give them the time that they need, and then leave it at that, you know? Yeah, but I feel like... Most people I know, even autistic people, do like to complain. Like, you like to complain. I do like to complain, but that's not necessarily autism. That just be personality. <laughs> no. But, like, yeah. Like, you complain about your... Your, your, your need to complain about your mum might be like their need to complain about their brother. Yes. They actually do need someone to talk to. Yeah. I mean, do you... Because you're not much of a complainer. You're a very, again, uh, easygoing kind of person. Do you ever feel like there is a difference between, you know, so as I said, when, when sort of talking about Jake's issues around the worm, for example, mm -hmm. right, do you feel better if you're talking to a parent of a child with autism or does it not necessarily matter? I feel more understood. Mm. Like when I talk to the parents of the other autistic kids who have been in Jake's classes, we can just talk about, you know, especially with remote learning, just talk about how difficult it was to get even the smallest thing done. Um, and the thing is, I, I was kind of lucky because in both the autistic kids who Jake's been in the class with, their parents have probably been having a harder time with it, which I think I've mentioned before. Mm. So I was kind of lucky that I wasn't having as bad a time as them. <laughs> yeah. But it does, it does help to just talk to someone and be able to, I guess, completely freely talk about 
your child not acting age appropriate mm. and know that you won't be judged. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, again, it's not to say exclusively that, you you know, other people who don't have children with autism will judge you. Man, that sentence was a mouthful. But um, but I, I hear what you're saying. It's, it's like um, social shortcuts, you know? Like being able to at least have a pretty decent guess that even if you say something that to other people might sound like you're just not appreciating a child or not working hard enough, they can kind of hear and go, yeah, that's me too. And that's, and you don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to go into detail about why you are thinking or feeling the way you're feeling or thinking, you know? Yeah. And you don't have to, you're not going to get a situation where you like open your heart to someone and talk about how your life is and they go, oh, well, you shouldn't have immunized them. Yeah. Or, oh. or you should smack them or, oh, I put mine in time out and that fixed them. Yeah. <laughs> or I took wheat out of their diet and now they're fine. Yes. So, to some degree, there is a bit of self-selection when it comes to friends, you know? I mean, mm. that's obvious, you know, but I guess that's what you... St- if, I guess if you start with a larger sample size, how, how very... Sci- what is a very scientific way of looking at socialising, but if you start with a larger sample size and you slowly whittle it down, that's not necessarily a bad thing, because then you end up just picking people who have that more, that more natural understanding of your situation. Yeah, and I guess, um, like, one of the things we've talked about before is the... Um, Correct, like, do you correct people if they assume you have a wife? Like, that's only I can really talk to my straight friends about because they're not gonna just go with it if someone assumes that they're gay. Like, why would they? Mm. So they can't fully understand why, in some situations, we just don't bother correcting people when they just assume we're straight because mm. it's just something that just doesn't happen to them. Yeah, um, and I think in the last couple of months, we were all trying to be very understanding of the fact that, you know, walking through the world as a person of colour is just different from walking through the world as a person who's white. And a few years ago, we all had to start thinking about the fact that walking through the street as a woman is different from walking through the street as a man. Mm. Um, And I walk around as a white man, so I can, you know, try to understand what it's like to, you know, walk at night as a woman or walk through the street as a, you know, First Nation person or walk through America as a black person. Um, But it's not my life. I don't live that way. Um, But then some of those people might not understand what it's like to want to hold your partner's hand while walking in the street and being hesitant or just not doing it. Yeah. Not that that I'm much for PDAs either anyway, but I I take your point. I do take your point. Yeah. Um, There... And, and I guess as part of that, I, I have to acknowledge that I've actually been really sheltered from the, I guess, broader societal kind of pressures because in my career, I, I don't really mention it. And I, 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 make, I make that choice. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of PDAs, so, you know, I'm, I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything by not being able to hold your hand in the street. But, I, I, but for other people, that's different. And I guess maybe that's it for me. It's that having your sexuality as the basis of your friendship is not enough because I guess it's not, it's not something for me that's really like a day-to-day problem generator, I guess Mm. is the way to think about it. Like, you know, parenting is a problem generator because there's, there's obligations. Work is a problem generator because you have to think about obligations and, and tasks and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, being gay 
Look, I, I had a pretty crappy coming out story. I'm not going to add that to the list of millions of crappy coming out stories that are out there. But aside from that, I've been really lucky. You know, I've had really understanding friends. I haven't been shunned or uh, maligned or anything. I got lucky enough to meet you, my, you know, second second real relationship. So, maybe, yeah, maybe that's... Maybe I'm having revelations while recording. Maybe that's all it is. Maybe that's why I'm not sure I understand why... Or I have... Well, no, that's, that, let me take that back. I'm not sure... Maybe that's why I personally don't feel like I need to be part of the gay community because I, I guess I I feel understood already. Yeah. Like, I, I was going to come to, I think, a very similar epiphany. But, you know, basically, you are the community I need when it comes to that. Hmm. Like, um, I think me talking to parents, uh, me talking to parents of, you know, autistic kids or special needs kids in general is kind of the community I need. Um, whereas, yeah, the gay community is not the gay, is not what I really need because you fulfill all I need for that. Mm. But also, I think you can also fill some of the autistic community for me, which is good. Mm. So I don't really have to talk to... Well, no, not that I avoid talking to grown-up autistic people. I just don't know any, really. Yeah. It was one of my, one of my friends I really, really thought he was. Mm. But then he got a different diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> Which wasn't like I was like, Oh, no, you're not my autistic friend. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> it just turned out that scientifically he wasn't my autistic friend. Mm. Um, on a technicality. But, yeah, so I guess I, I, I walk in very nerdy circles, so I, I'm definitely around people with autistic traits like me. Mm. Whether I'm walking around with people who would actually get a diagnosis of autism based on the one time someone tried. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I guess, like, I'm around, I guess, successful adult people with autistic tendencies, so there's probably less maladaption there. Mm. So that's probably why they wouldn't get the diagnosis. And it it is funny that, again, this, this sort of idea that one person is enough of a community is also very autistic in its nature. So, you know, for, for a lot of people with autism, it's not about having lots of people around. It's just having that connection is important. And if you can get just that one connection, it is equivalent to having a you know, having a group of four or five people who are all get al- getting along in the same kind of way. And so, yeah, I remember, you know, once we got the diagnosis for the kids and they were entering, I don't remember if it's kindergarten or school or in general, with that kind of knowledge equipped, I was very much of the idea that all I really want is for Jake to have one friend. Because I remember growing up, I only ever had one friend at a time. I was never really part of a group until about maybe grade four or five. And even then, I always had the one friend and a group of people I might play four square with. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, my... I think the boys also appreciated having at least two spare friends to play four square. Yeah, <laughs> it helps. It helps. But yeah, I, my ambition for the kids was never that they were to need to be popular. Mm-hmm. As for some people, it, it, that seems to be the goal. I just wanted them to have that one person they could connect with that they'd felt understood by. And if that's all they had, I'd be happy and that would Mm -hmm. be it, you know? But I think also in prep, we and the teacher did try to get Jake to befriend the the other most autistic child in his class. Mm. And it kind of worked to a degree, but didn't in the long run. Mm. So maybe it was a good idea, but maybe we just had to let him find his own friend. 
Yeah. And he did. Like, he didn't need, I guess, social engineering to actually get that one friend. No. It just wasn't the one we pushed him towards. <laughs> Indeed. But at the same time, at, at, you know, for the kids, essentially, as you said, they have each other. Yes. So even if they don't have the one friend out there, they have the one friend here within their own family system. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's fortunate. Again, the good argument for having twins, you know. Well, a good argument for having siblings, I'd say. Well, it depends, I guess. Age, age gaps can cause, you know. Age gaps can separation. cause problems. But also, siblings can also move to other, uh, other states and all sorts of things. Mm. Um, which is kind of what happened to me. <laughs> I'm, the only, I'm the only one left in the state. And with coronavirus borders, that's a... That's actually more significant than it usually is. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that's probably a good place to end it. It so, probably is. Thank you for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have your own experiences to share, if you have differing opinions, please let us know. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Atypical Rainbow. Uh, and keep an eye out for the next episode, which will be advertised again on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time.